Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everyone. It's October the 13th, 2021. It's been an endless October the 13th. This is the third interview I've done today. It's quite a record. We're up over 500 interviews for the series, and I'm very excited with today's um, subject. Uh, she has uh, become uh, one of the most uh, influential and important, I think, uh, thinkers on politics and culture in America. But before I get to her, I want to remind you of some shows we've had in the past. They've always been about decay. The D word seems to be the critical word in, in the way we're thinking about things. Last month, I had the Financial Times journalist Philip Stevens on the show talking about the decline of Great Britain. That's a, an age-old subject. I'm not sure whether Britain was ever not in decline. Um, Putin's Russia, of course, is in permanent decline too. We had Joshua Yaffer on the show, the excellent New Yorker writer, talking about the decline of Russia, particularly in terms of intellectual uh, decline. And of course, the decline of America is something we talk about on a daily, if not an hourly basis, not only on this show, but in real life. Uh, George Packer has been on the show and so many others talking about the decline of uh, America. So it's Britain, it's Russia, it's America, and sometimes we're mixing them up. The Princeton historian... Um, Harold James was on the show recently arguing that the decline in America uh, in the present moment is rather like the dying days of the Soviet Union. And recently we had Joseph Weisberg on the show suggesting that Putin and Biden have a lot in common, all too much uh, in common. America, Russia, Britain. And they're all brought together in a brilliant new book uh, by Fiona Hill. There is nothing for you here. Fiona Hill is uh, famous or infamous in many circles, both as a policymaker, someone who fell out with Donald Trump um, and was very vocal um, in that. Uh, and I'm thrilled that Fiona is talking to me from her home in Washington, D.C. Uh, Fiona, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Uh, Keenon um, is also the name of your husband. So we have more... <laughs> Uh, in common, perhaps, than would initially appear. Fiona, your book, in part, is about this triple decline, the trifecta. Um, Britain, where you grew up, Russia, where you've spent your professional life studying, and America, where you've spent half your life. What do Britain, contemporary Britain, Russia, and America have in common? Well, at the moment, we've uh, very much got the same style of politics, of um, populist politics. And as you just suggested in your review of all of the other previous books and some of the speakers that you've talked to, uh, we're all in a situation where people are talking about decline and demise. I mean, in, in the case of Russia with Vladimir Putin, um, he is you know, certainly trying to divert attention away from that. We've also got Putin, who's um, personally planning on being in power until 2036, uh, kind of a bucking a trend of uh, leaders who you know eventually end up having to leave office. But all of the, these populist politicians, these leaders, these strongman leaders that have emerged, particularly in uh, Russia and the United States with Putin and Trump, have come out of 
decades of post-industrial decline. This is the focus point of uh, of, of the book um, that I've just written. Uh, periods where the time sequencing was a little different, but really beginning in the 1980s when the heavy industry, the commanding heights of industry, the smokestack industries, steelworks, coal mines, um, the railways, uh, the shipyards, all start to close down under the pressures of economic change and modernization, uh, forces of automation. And you get all of the workers in these industries suddenly without jobs and also without the education and uh, the larger capacity to move and to do something else. And a lot of them are stuck in places, big industrial cities that were built up in all three countries after World War II in the last big push of industrialization, especially leading up until the 1970s. And it's some of those grievances that have been tapped into in the populist politics of the three countries. And in 2016, we get a kind of a perfect storm. I mean, I talk in the book about how those three countries, as you said, the country I'd grown up in, the country I'd studied all of my life, you know, my professional life beginning in 1984, and the country that I'd come to live in in 1989 and have made my whole life here, uh, basically collided. You had in 2016, Russia's decision under Vladimir Putin to unleash the security services to interfere in the, the US presidential election to try to put their finger on the scales and to sort of see what would happen to sow discord and uh, questions about the legitimacy of the whole US electoral and political system. And you had in the UK and in the United States phenomena that were very similar. You had Brexit, uh, the UK decision to hold a referendum on whether the UK should stay in uh, the European Union or not. And you had candidates out there with populist politics, Nigel Farage, for the UK Independence Party that starts whipping up all of the sort of sentiment against the European Union. And the mainstream British politics have to follow this because for years, all of the problems in the, most of England outside of London, where there's been a failure to reconstruct the country after the collapse of heavy industry, have been blamed on the European Union, not letting the British government do what they needed to do, or blamed on masses of immigrants coming in from around Europe. Uh, from Bulgaria and Poland, but also France and Italy and you know elsewhere, and taking away jobs from, from Brits. And of course, you have in uh, 2016 in the United States, Trump basically saying very similar things, that all of um, America's problems are the problems of the Rust Belt, the American Midwest, the left behind, the flyover parts of the United States are rooted in globalization, in people's jobs going abroad, in unelected bureaucrats not doing their job and uh, allowing China and others to pull away uh, American jobs and to flood the country with um, imports, uh, cheap imports, and also from immigration, Mexicans and others coming across the border and taking Americans' jobs away from them, or having their factories moved to Mexico, for example. So you get these um, this confluence of events here, in which the three countries, you know, come together, and then we have COVID on top of this. I bet we've seen all these three countries. In fact, I mean, just in the papers um, right now in this week in October and October the 13th, Russia is having uh, one of the highest incidents, not just of infection um, from COVID-19, the Delta variant, but the highest number of deaths. Yeah, I saw that. It's, yeah, it exactly. sounds to me like in Russia, more than a million people have died. Fiona, yeah. One of the things I love about the book, I mean, we've had many, many books about deindustrialization and decline, but yours is a very personal story. It's a story of your own life. Um, and it begins and in some ways ends in a, in a place called Bishop Auckland in the northeast of England. Um, the title of the book, There Is Nothing For You Here, was actually said by your father and was 
one of the reasons why you left Big Bishop Auckland. Tell us about this place where you grew up and which still seems to exist uh, in your heart. Yeah, I mean, it exists in my heart because, in fact, it was a really nice town. It had a long history. It's a fairly storied place in the borderlands of, um, of, of Britain. It's just a little bit south of Hadrian's Wall. There was a massive fort that the Romans built there. I mean, this is going to, it's a bit hard for people to remember, but Britain, uh, you know, was the outer rim of the Roman Empire. I mean, it was a long way for the Romans to walk to get there, but, you know, they came. And uh, it had uh, all kinds of, um, you know, legends and stories around it from antiquity. It was the home of the bishops of Durham who were prince bishops. They were actually the rulers uh, deputized by the monarch uh, to kind of basically stave off the uh, the Scots and any invaders. Uh, they were given a princely title and uh, allowed to kind of rule uh, the, uh, the region in sort of semi-independence up until the 1840s. It was a, a, a cradle of the Industrial Revolution. All kinds of innovations were emerged there. It was kind of the Silicon Valley of its time. And people made things in County Durham and in Bishop Auckland and elsewhere that were uh, recognised around the world. And then suddenly the bottom fell out of the place. It was built up on coal mines and innovation. Heyday in you know, the late 1880s by, you know, we get to the time of World War One, and then especially after World War Two, And when I was born in the 1960s, the economy was really in trouble. All the coal mines had closed down, all the foundries for the, the local railways uh, that were uh, established there. So one, by the time I come along, most of the people in the town don't have jobs. And for a person like myself, a young person in 1984, when I graduated school, there was a 90% youth unemployment rate in the UK. And, you know, you can imagine what that was like trying to find a job in the northeast of England. I was um, looking to apply to university. My parents were encouraging me. They'd never been to university. I was going to be the first person in my immediate family to go to college. And basically they were telling me, go somewhere else, look for opportunities somewhere else. As my dad said, there's nothing for you here. And yet, you know, there'd been something there for all of my family, generations of my family who had lived in and around, you know, Bishop Auckland, going back to, you know, my great, great grandparents. You have a front seat on this, Fiona, and, and, and you write very honestly about the impact that this all had on, on your family, on your relatives. What was it like? Well, you know, there's one point, you know, about this that I want to make clear is people didn't really sit around feeling sorry for themselves. Um, you know, this could have been a story, I guess, about, you know, what a hard time I had and, you know, kind of what a miraculous um, opportunity it was to get out. Uh, I didn't always feel like that. I, you know, actually, I was always going back to my hometown, even after I'd left to go back and visit and spend, you know, periods of, of time there. Because initially when I was growing up, I didn't kind of realise that I was living in such a deprived environment. I mean, obviously, I, I realized that there was a big difference between how my father and my grandparents lived, uh, my uh, father's parents who lived in a broken down row house in um, a place called Rodimu, a pit village, a mining village where everything had gone and that old people were just kind of abandoned there. That was pretty grim. But Bishop Auckland had created opportunity for my dad. He did get a job after the mines closed down in the local hospital. That's where he met my mother, who was a midwife. She was in that first crop of nurses and midwives that were trained under the National Health Service in the UK. And your you know, mother comes across in the book as a, as a remarkable woman, strong, educated. Yeah. Um, you don't write explicitly about maleness and femaleness, although you do talk about the way in which uh, all women were, were subject to 
sexual aggression, what we might think of now as sexual crimes. We had a show about that earlier this week. Um, But in terms of the gendered roles, what was the impact of deindustrialization? Lots of theories about male insecurity. It's no coincidence, of course, that Trump and Putin and Orban and Erdogan, they're all male and they all seem to appeal more and more to, to men. Well, you know, a lot of these um, traditional uh, working class societies were also matriarchies. I mean, the women, you know, run the households. They might not have worked down the pits or, you know, kind of in the steelworks, obviously, but they were running the households and they were the backbones of the communities. I mean, just like my mum, you know, going out there to be a midwife. You know, the school teachers were often, you know, women, uh, you know, usually from the community. And I had a lot of very strong female role models, but, you know, a lot of the women also lost their place in the communities when everybody else lost their jobs. You know, there were women who did work uh, in jobs that were also built up around the same steelworks and coal mines, you know, in the in the shops that, you know, basically thrived or didn't thrive, you know, on the on the basis of the community where the people had money to spend or not. You know, women who had cleaning jobs, you know, women who, you know, obviously, uh, you know, were trying to raise families there. And one of, you know, the most disturbing things about the long sweep of this is that there are a lot of reports now coming out in the United States as well as in the United Kingdom about high mortality rates of women, not just of men, the so-called deaths of despair that Angus Deaton and... Um, yeah, but Angus Deaton has been on the show and, uh, and, and he blurred yeah, I mean, your book. They've written about all of this. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that uh, for me is I mean, it's groundbreaking research, but, you know, I also saw it close up. My grandmother, my father's mother, for example, was defeated by, you know, the loss of the community around her in which she'd thrived. And, you know, she, you know, basically became confined to one room. She was crippled with arthritis. She became obese. She never left the house. She never left the room. And she became incredibly depressed. My mother's mother, on the other hand, had grown up on a farm and was one of those kanji people who was incredibly resourceful on no money whatsoever. We didn't realize until much later in life that she was living on way beyond the uh, below the poverty line on less than a shoestring. But somehow she always knew how to make ends meet. And so she, you know, was always a very vibrant member of, you know, the kind of the local community. But she lived in a different place and her community hadn't completely collapsed. And the communities that were, they collapsed. The women, like the men, lost their kind of sense of place and belonging and became you know, subject to despair too. And women's well-being declined. Women's mortality rates also went up. Life expectancy in the north of England, just like in many places around the United States, plummeted. I'm intrigued by the fate of Bishop Auckland, um, uh, Fiona. Two things struck me in the book. Firstly, your reference to Beamish, which is a way of sort of essentially monetizing nostalgia uh, of the cultural history of the area, and this, and, and the second is uh, what one local newspaper called the Ruffer Revolution, not R U F F E R. Tell me a little bit about both those ways of confronting decline: the uh, the, the the Ruffer response or the Beamish response. So as you're pointing out, these are two very different things. Um, one, uh, Jonathan Ruffer is a philanthropist. Um, he was um, a millionaire. Um, he started off in very humble origins as well, but you know, um, was very well educated, went into finance and investment in London and made a fortune and decided um, to invest in Bishop Auckland. I, I call it in the, uh, in the book almost buying Bishop Auckland because he'd initially set out 
to acquire a set of very famous paintings that had been housed in the Bishop of Durham's Palace in Bishop Auckland, a kind of a, a listed building historic site in Bishop Auckland that was really the, kind of the centerpiece of the old core of the town, which had also fallen into disrepair. And the, the Church of England was trying to sell it off, essentially, and sell off the paintings. And they discovered that they couldn't sell the paintings on their own. Jonathan Ruff was going to buy them and you know bequeath, bequeath them to a museum. You know, perhaps uh, set up some exhibitions around them. He's very interested. These were from a famous Spanish artist. And then he became so struck by the sorry state of the town, the fact that the paintings were tied to the Bishop's Palace, that he decided to actually do something much bigger than buying some paintings and essentially invest in the town and try to see if he could turn it around. And he has invested there since 2012, 2013 in um, a whole series of projects under the rubric of the Auckland Project, uh, to buy up some of the old and decaying buildings that have been sort of abandoned in the town and to try to send it into a tourist centre. He's building up a museum of faith centred around, you know, the role of the church in multiple different faiths because the, the paintings had been actually part of a bequest by a bishop of Durham or a requester um, uh, to uh, uh, the Spanish uh, painter to support uh, the Jewish population in Britain at the time who were being persecuted. This was a kind of an ecumenical, you know, cross-religious outreach effort. And the money uh, that was given uh, from the paintings was supposed to be supporting some of the persecuted Jewish population within Britain. And this particular Bishop of Durham was very interested in other faiths. So Jonathan Ruff is picking up on this idea to you know, try to create a museum of faith. There, There's going to be a Spanish art gallery. There's already a miners art gallery. And there's also an incredible, um, basically, public show with thousands of volunteers modelled off another effort that had actually been very successful in France in another similar area that had fallen on high times, um, uh, basically called Kinran, uh, a volunteer production showing the whole sweep of history in Britain uh, with live action, very much like the uh, British Olympic uh, opening ceremony show, you know, when uh, London hosted uh, the Olympics with kind of lights and performances. I mean, I've seen it. I saw the very first one and a couple of since, and it's really very stirring and moving, interweaving uh, northeast uh, British history with the largest sweep of British history and some of the I do want to come back to Rafa, but talk briefly about Beamish and this yeah, way Beamish of monetizing different. nostalgia, not necessarily That's in a right. critical way. No, not at all, because Beamish is something different. This was more of a popular grassroots level uh, effort to um, make something of the, the, the history of the region, the history that I talked about, this industrial history that people took great pride in and try to save some of the buildings and some of the artifacts of the industrial age that were being demolished across um, you know, the United Kingdom in the 80s and, and onwards. And Beamish was an effort of the local county councils, including County Durham, to pool their cultural funds and to then you know, try to get um, local people involved in donating artifacts, you know, family heirlooms or household goods, to basically show what the north of England was like in that peak of the industrial uh, revolution. And so there's a there's a whole town been built up. Beamish was a former pit village. It had an old hall there, you know, going back several centuries. You know, some uh, wonderful old buildings. There was a there was a drift mine, a mine that people walked into that was there and that had been abandoned. That they've actually got back to being a working mine. And they took artifacts from coal mining villages and towns, including from Bishop Auckland. There's an old pub there from Bishop Auckland. Bandstands, you know, you name it, and all of the household goods and furnishings from all the way around the region and put them there in Beamish. And just before uh, the COVID pandemic, Beamish was almost entirely self-supporting on the back of basically visitor 
fees uh, for coming in. Schools from around the country would uh, come to Beamish for uh, lessons in local history. Uh, you've got visitors from all around um, the uh, the region coming because you have local enactors, you know, former coal miners who still man the mines, um, you know, people pretending obviously to be uh, all kinds of uh, uh, town dwellers in Beamish from different uh, ages, you know, dating back to the height of the Industrial uh, Revolution. You know, as someone as a kid who went to Beamish quite frequently, it was a really great fun trip out. And you know, when I go back, to Fiona, office, let's go back to this um, this Rafa initiative because I, I want to talk to you about how we confront this crisis. Um, in the same section that you write about Raqqa, you you also write. Um, quite sympathetically about what Mackenzie Scott uh, is doing, uh, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, in terms of philanthropy. Is the fix to this decline philanthropy? Is it the, the money of a Bezos or a, or a Rafa? Or do we need to look more structurally at these problems? We need to look more structurally at them. But, you know, I think a lot of the evidence, when you kind of look into the efforts to revitalize these forgotten places, <laughs> comes um, you know, very clearly to the conclusion when you, you, know, you really look at the efforts to transform uh, places and to turn them around that you do need some assets you know, to basically kickstart things. So I'd looked um, you know, for years actually at local development corporations because some of the work that I was doing in Russia and the former Soviet Union, we were also thinking about setting up you know, venture capital, you know, getting public-private partnerships together to stimulate new um, businesses, uh, small businesses across the former Soviet Union. I've worked directly on that. And when I was um, a kid in high school, I also um, briefly had an internship with my local county council at the time when they were trying to create local development corporations. And they almost fell flat in County Durham in the northeast of England because there was no real industry left. There was no major philanthropy. And that's why the county councils got together to create Beamish as a kind of a way of sort of stimulating the local economy through tourism. And the, and the places that they work, um, you know, for example, think of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, the steelworks closed down there. For time, you know, the town was in really big trouble, but they created, again, one of these development corporations. They also emphasize tourism. The steelworks have been turned into exhibition um, space, conference site, also casinos. And the town has also attracted in new industry and new business, um, you know, working with tourism, but also with attracting in new businesses. In Detroit, you know, for example, in Michigan, you still had General Motors and some of the big, um, you know, Ford and other uh, car companies, and they worked together to bring in new, uh, innovative uh, business. They worked with the local government and with other, you know, kind of private sector initiatives and set up a, basically a, a, an equivalent of a development council. But in each time, in, in each case, there needed to be some infusion of funds, and that's where, where Ruffer, you know, his initiative. The hope was, and of him and you know others who got involved in this, is that he would start to spur other investment. And right now, County Durham is on the shortlist for the UK City of Culture competition for 2025, in which if they won, they would be able to get UK government investment to sort of kickstart even more initiatives. And the only way that they've actually managed to get successful um, bid for to getting onto the shortlist is because of efforts like Beamish unlike Jonathan Ruffer's Auckland project. You know, previously they didn't really have much hope of doing this because they didn't really have anything happening there. They had, you know, some great museums, there's great history, you know, people who still took pride in the place, but they didn't have any assets. 
it's a kind of a case of, you know, if you get some of these investments to sort of stimulate things in the first place, they can then, you know, build on this. And this is, you know, why, you know, I pointed to McKinsey Scott's efforts. You know, she's trying to actually give some money to pre-existing uh, efforts, historical black uh, colleges, for example, community colleges, people who are really trying to retrain and help uh, educate uh, the most marginalized and disadvantaged communities. She's investing in existing entities, though. She's not starting something up from scratch. I also talk in the book about private sector initiatives of corporations like Chobani in the New York, the yogurt company, where the, um, the head of Chobani, the founder of the company, who is an immigrant, a Kurdish immigrant from Turkey, also has made a lot of investments in the community around him and you know, similar initiatives elsewhere. So this is a public-private effort. You have to kind of think of the structure um, of the communities. There's a larger effort that has to be done on the state level, the, you know, the central government level. But public um, efforts can only go so far and far, private philanthropy. Right. And, and so on the one hand, we have the initiatives of, of, uh, of Raqqa, of Mackenzie Bezos, of stuff like Beamish. On the other hand, though, in the book, you are calling for what you explicitly say as a new Marshall Plan to confront deindustrialization in the United States and the United Kingdom. Is that realistic? Uh, I had David Cutler on the show recently, Obama's healthcare czar, uh, talking about the need for a Marshall Plan in terms of rebuilding America's cities. Whenever I hear that, I'm a little skeptical because I'm not sure if the money is there. And certainly I'm not convinced the political will is there. Yeah, look, I talk about this in rather a measured um, way. I, in fact, you know, I pick up from a letter that um, several mayors from the Midwest, from Appalachia, you know, wrote to the Washington Post calling for this. And then, you know, I kind of take it apart somewhat because the original Marshall Plan, of course, the United States launched in Europe uh, to promote reconstruction. Uh, to head off communism, uh, you know, with the great fear with all the uh, de destruction in Europe, uh, the rise of populist, um, potentially authoritarian parties there, particularly on the left, was what they were most concerned about, the massive refugee problem, that there was going to be a, a large transfer of funds and infusion of cash to individual countries, you know, to basically get themselves back on their feet again. The important thing about the Marshall Plan was that it wasn't just the United States doing everything from the center. There was a transfer of funds. A lot of those funds were actually paid back again, but there were individual country plans and programs. The World Bank grows out of this, but it's, a, it's the development focus that's the most important thing, not the transfer of funds. And out of uh, these programs, a lot of countries start to do things themselves. They build up their own you know, development ministries and corporations, and they kind of think about the country-specific needs and country-specific programs is not just, you know, one size fits all. And, you know, the, the message that I'm trying to send there is it doesn't need, you know, great transfers of money, but it does require a development focus and local and state governments and communities focusing themselves on, you know, what they can uh, they can actually achieve in the sense of a comprehensive development. And you're right, the money may not be there. The money may not come from uh, the central government. Jonathan Ruffer made a big infusion, sort of the Ruffer plan in the Auckland project. McKinsey Scott has um, you know, given out um, a load of money here. It's, it's the important thing is what is done with it. And you can raise assets locally, these local development corporations, you know, like the uh, development corporation in Detroit or the uh, corporation uh, Bethlehem, they've raised funds locally and regionally. So it, it can't all come from the central government. And I think you're absolutely right to be sceptical. But the big um, uh, idea there is 
getting localities, communities and regions and states to start to think about what they could do to develop their economy, what they can build on, what local assets do they have? And it could be culture, it could be tourism, it could be scenery. You know, I talk about the Lehigh Valley uh, in Pennsylvania and the scenic gorge that um, is there for the Lehigh Valley and the, all the tourism that had been built up. Obviously, COVID has had a very negative effect on a lot of this. And we're going to have to you know, think differently, perhaps about some of these programs post-COVID. Um, your book, uh, Fiona, is very personal and it, and it tells your own story of going from uh, uh, Bishop Auckland to the White House. And you're not shy to use your life as a parable for what we can do right. What does your life teach us about fixing some of these crises of deindustrialization? Well, it does teach us that it takes a lot of effort. Education is pretty critical because you've got to basically be able to give people the chance to get new tools for um, a new economy. Uh, you know, the lesson that I took away from looking at my grandparents and my parents, my father in particular, was that um, you know people were getting cast aside. There wasn't any kind of response, there wasn't any funding for them to be retrained. A little later, there was. I mean, my, my father just had the misfortune of losing his job in the mines at a time when there wasn't any sort of social funds or any other ability to retrain. And a lot of miners you know, were left just looking for other kinds of menial, uh, manual work, and it would take it wherever they could. A little later, you know, by my uh, generation coming along, there is some funds for that. A lot of them actually came from the European Union in the United States, but people are able to retool, retrain, get other qualifications. It takes that kind of structural intervention that you're talking about to really make things change. I benefit from the opening up of education. I benefit from the availability of grants for education. I, I, I graduate with no educational debt, um, which is miraculous, um, you know, to say now in the light of, you know, where people are in the United States just taking on these heavy debt burdens you know, for education. The country still thought this was an investment in human capital, although, of course, I left and came to the United States. The United States did the same after World War II in rebuilding the GI Bill. There were Pell Grants in the United States for people who were going the first generation in college. Later on in the 1980s, when I come to the United States, the whole idea is this is an individual endeavor. This is all about the individual, not the community, not the country investing in its human capital. I think we've got to a stage where we now know, and this is kind of, you know, I learned this from my own history and I lay that out in that personal biography, that, you know, this is an investment in the country overall. The, the fact that people are not getting educated has political consequences. The dividing line now in the United States, the class line, the political line is whether people have got any kind of higher education or not. You know, people are not acquiring the knowledge to be able to work in the new innovative economy. Uh, private sector is, you know, looking for people to fill in jobs and people don't have the qualifications for them. But also this is fodder for influence operations like the Russians launched in 2016 or di disinformation operations in the United States itself by, you know, particular political interests, basically feeding off people's lack of knowledge, their lack of education, you know, their inability to be able to distinguish between uh, valid information and misinformation or disinformation that's being you know politically deployed there are so many elements to this and i laid this all out in the book you know in a way that i hope is accessible for people and for people to be able to grasp because this is what i've learned myself through my own journey 
from you know where I started off to to where I got here and education was an important point I was able to see that my I myself was a data point you know I was a story in well, you're more than a data point, uh, Fiona. You might refer to yourself as a data point, but you, you've really taken on um, not just Donald Trump, but Vladimir Putin. Um, uh, you had a, a, a book out about Putin. Of course, you've, you've taken on Trump. This was this great headline from Associated Press. Uh, I heard you um, uh, over the weekend warning that January 6th was a dress rehearsal for the destruction of... Uh, democracy. Um, you're, you're arguing that if, if Trump makes a successful return in 2024, uh, democracy will be done. Um, your book ends on a very serious note. What did you or what have you learned from your experiencing, from your experience working uh, for Donald Trump? Well, I've learned that, you know, no country is immune to flawed leadership and that democracy needs constant attention. You know, when I came to the United States in 1989, it was the end of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall came down, you know, in the first months that I was um, here in the United States. You know, we thought we were opening up a new chapter um, in the 1990s, uh, where there would be basically a coalescence, a convergence, uh, that the Soviet Union was gone and Russia, you know, would eventually kind of be, you know, not that dissimilar from other, you know, Western democratic countries, there was this high expectation, high hopes. Well, I've also, you know, learned how difficult it is to pull that off, that, um, you know, democracy is actually very difficult to maintain. Russia had this whole period of democratization in the 1990s. It fell apart because of economic crisis and also because of a lack of political will and also because of a failure to really uh, install or um, inculcate uh, the rule of law in Russia. There was, a, there was a whole failure to, you know, basically create a state that was, um, you know, basically functioning within uh, a coherent legal system. We've got that in the United States. But what we're seeing is people picking away at it and the same patterns that are emerging elsewhere. And I learned that, you know, at first hand, seeing it close up in the Trump administration, how easy it was to undermine a very vibrant, you know, long standing democratic system. And that's why I feel like I need to speak out. You know, take myself up from being a data point or looking at the data and actually speak up and, you know, uh, try to uh, get people to understand and to see what I'm seeing as well. What have you seen about Trump? You work closely with him. Um, he didn't show you a great deal of respect, but you saw him up front. You were his Russia advisor. Given your background in Russian history, um, is he obsessed with power? Is there an element of perhaps Lenin or, as we discussed earlier, uh, Trotsky in, 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 in Trump's thinking? Well, there's definitely an aspect to both of them. I mean, he um, is like Lenin in the fact that you know, he does want to seize power. Um, he sees that, you know, kind of um, power is there for the grabs. And, and he had, um, in uh, many respects, a kind of a Bolshevik mentality of, you know, using a kind of a small group to sort of launch himself into power and then to hold on to it. And, you know, we've clearly seen in the events of uh, January 6th uh, and everything that kind of led up to that, you know, someone who's pretty ruthless about um, maintaining power and was ready to repudiate, you know, the, uh, the results of an election uh, and basically, you know, claiming that he is still one. You know, Lenin and the Bolsheviks, I mean, the story that you know, because you're an East Europeanist as well, is that at one of the, the, the congresses of the socialist um, uh, parties, 
the Bolsheviks decided themselves, uh, declared themselves the majority, even though they were not. The name Bolshevik, you know, means those in the majority. They were actually in the minority, but they said that everybody else was in the minority, that they were the, you know, the leaders. This is just what Trump has done right from the very beginning, you know, that it, uh, he had uh, the best possible outcome. You know, he won, uh, you know, with the largest majority. The crowds on his inauguration were the biggest crowds that anybody had ever seen. He's always using that Bolshevik imagery that, you know, he's the majority, he's the person who, you know, basically everyone is uh, turning to. But the, the Trotskyite element of this, you know, as we're all students of uh, the Russian Revolution, is that idea of permanent revolution, the permanent campaign of basically, you know, repudiating the establishment, you know, kind of getting rid of uh, the government and, you know, basically running everything out of, a, again, a very small clique. And Steve Bannon, uh, you know, one of Trump's advisors, described himself openly as a Leninist, although I would say he was more of a Trotskyist because of Trotsky, because his focus was on the sort of permanent revolution, in this case, the permanent campaign. Trotsky, of course, ended with a pickaxe in his, in his head in Mexico City. But um, how do we counter this, Fiona? Uh, it, your book does a very good job and your, your work in media, you're, 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 you're very vocal in, in your fears and you're not really coming from the left. I think, if anything, you're more of a centre-right political thinker. But what is the best way to stand up to Trump and to this new kind of Trotskyism or, or Bolshevism, Leninism in America today? Well, I mean, the, probably the best way is not to put these labels on. I mean, that's you and me having this kind of discussion. I think it's, you know, trying to kind of reach out to, you know, people you know, across the United States, try to explain to them in, you know, ways that they can, you know, see readily what's happening here. I mean, I hope the book will, you know, play something of a role in that, that I can get people to read it and that the personal story, you know, that I think an awful lot of people can relate to in the United States will help, you know, to frame, you know, the discussion that we need to be having. It's going to take an awful lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of mobilization of, you know, people who are centrist, people who are not affiliated with either the Democratic or the Republican Party, but it is going to take effort at the top. And this is where I think we have the biggest problem. I mean, we've all been talking about, and you've been talking about on um, your shows, about the nationalization of politics in the United States, where all local politics is national now. Every um, local election campaign, state election campaign, seems to be a referendum on the kind of national politics and on whether people like Trump or they don't like Trump. There's so much factional fighting within the parties themselves, not just the parties and fighting across, uh, across party lines. And within the Republican Party itself, the Republican Party sort of disappeared. The Republican Party that I certainly knew, you know, from all my time here in the United States, the Republican Party that I've you know, read about in history. You know, you've got to a point here now, it's become much more like a, a personality cult, a charismatic personality cult that you see in other settings. And that, you know, there is no real party platform, no independence in the party. It's not even democratic centralism that you saw back in the old Bolshevik, you know, kind of party or the Communist Party in the early days. It's all about the worship of the leader. So this is kind of, you know, like uh, other, another era in other people's politics. And, uh, and you know, in the public opinion polling, we're seeing that those people who de de declare themselves to be Republicans, identify themselves as Republicans, are completely opposed to any kind of criticism of Trump. And so that's where we are. And it's going to take then people within the Republican Party having the guts, frankly, to stand up and to stand up for democracy and the truth. I mean, this is well, uh, you certainly um, if, if if there's one word I think to describe Fiona Hill, it's someone with guts. You uh, headline you you were involved in the extraordinary 
an extraordinary uh, impeachment testimony uh, during the impeachment trial, uh, according to uh, John Cassidy of the New Yorker. You've done so much. This book really um, encapsulates everything that you've been doing, everything you've been thinking, and everything about yourself. So congratulations, Fiona, very much on the book. What else should people be reading in these strange times, in addition to your book, to make them wiser about the world? You know, I think one book that really, um, I don't actually have it right here in front of me, that I think, you know, people should read just to kind of get a feel of the times that we're in is Eric Larson's In the Garden of Beasts. You know, this is um, Eric Larson's book, uh, which he uh, pulls from the uh, the diaries of the American ambassador in Germany in the 1930s. This is all in the early part of the 1930s, where people were not really clear what was going on. And the ambassador at the time was um, a historian of Germany. And couldn't believe that Germany could go down this path, the Germany that he'd written about, the Germany that he knew. And he'd been so eager to be the um, ambassador to Germany. He'd been, you know, close friends with the American president. That's how he got there. And he was just shocked and overwhelmed and came back from Germany trying to sound the alarm himself about what was going on there. But nobody really paid much attention to him. And it's a it's a fantastic read. I mean, Eric Larson is a is a great writer. And it's a, a you know a book that could be fictional, but is basically nonfiction because it's drawn directly from uh, these diaries and the diaries of uh, the ambassador's um, daughter. Some things that I'm actually reading at the moment. I'm reading a book by one of my uh, colleagues at Brookings, um, Tom Wright, uh, with Colin Carl, who's uh, now an official in the Pentagon, aftershocks, which is you know looking at the what the um, pandemic has done to the international order, and you know kind of really the the whole scope of um, the international arena that we see before us and really the dilemmas that the United States is going to have on foreign policy, putting aside, you know, what's happening on our domestic front. I'm reading two um, other books, one um, by another Brookings colleague, Jonathan Rauch, The Constitution of Knowledge, Defense of the Truth. Yeah, Jonathan's been really, on the show talking about that yeah, book. Exactly too, yeah. I mean, this is a really powerful book. And, you know, Jonathan is out there making, you know, kind of the case of please can we tell the truth and, you know, the importance of all of this in the Constitution. I mean, this is a really erudite and uh, um, important book. And I'm also um, reading a book by um, Theodore Roosevelt Johnson, um, Ted Johnson a book when the stars begin to fall about overcoming racism in America. And Ted um, is, is in this book. I don't know if you've met him. He would be, you know, another great person. No, we need to get yeah. him on the show. You'll have to introduce yeah. me. Making, I would like to do that, making the case about how racism and, you know, many of the other cleavages that we have in our society is actually a national mm. security crisis. And, you know, he obviously talks about how the Soviet Union in its day and now modern Russia, you know, has been uh, able to point to the persistence of racism in uh, US society uh, to also push that back against the United States and to exploit it. And we might remember after um, the uh, separate uh, press conferences in Geneva, after President Biden met with President uh, Putin for their summit, when Putin was asked about human rights abuses in Russia and all the problems in Russia, he pushed right back at the United States and basically said, well, what about the United States? What about racism? What about the Black Lives Matter movement? He also pointed to January 6th and talked about you know, the political martyrs of the, the, the mob that stormed uh, Capitol, um, the Capitol building. So Putin's very quick to pick up on our faults and our flaws and our divisions and the structural problems that we still have within our society. And Ted makes a really important case as somebody who's been, I mean, a great patriot of the United States who served in the military um, in the in the in the navy, went to the naval academy, um, and you know talks about his own sort of personal experiences. You know, growing up in an America that he really loves, and how you know racism has um, been one of these 
fatal flaws and that is a national security crisis is exploited from the outside, not just a problem of kind of bringing us down in, uh, in the inside. Well, we'll have to get Ted on the show. Uh, Fiona Hill, the author of There Is Nothing For You Here, a wonderful new book about your life, your experiences, and the crisis of deindustrialization, not only in the United States, but in the United Kingdom and Russia. Congratulations on the book, Fiona, and congratulations Thanks, on um, on everything you're doing. It's quite remarkable. Uh, uh, if 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 I didn't know it was true, I would have think I would have thought it was all made up. And I will look forward <laughs> to hearing more about the next chapter. And I hope you'll come back on the show to talk more. There's so much more to talk about. Thank you so much. Well, I would love to. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's great being with you.